John chapter 5. We have been looking at the Gospel of John, specifically looking at the life of Jesus, how we can imitate him to grow up into a more mature being. What does it look like to be more mature in Christ, to grow up to a perfect man, a mature believer? And so I'm trying not to give as much background and nitty-gritty on the, the passages themselves, but applying them. How do we apply this to our lives? What does it look like that Jesus, thank you, that Jesus is set the example for us? the Son of God. So, we have been in John for several months now. Uh, We pick up in chapter 5 this morning. Let's read verse 1 through 17. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, colonnades or porches, whatever translation he has, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool where, when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was on the Sabbath day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. It's hard to find a stopping place for this passage. We're going to pick back up with these latter verses of what we just read, going on down through verse 23 or 24 next week. What I want us just to look quickly at the context of what's happening here. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We know that he went back to Galilee, to the region up to the north where he was from. And this, this time he went through Sikar, the Samaritan village, and he had needs to go through uh, Samaria to meet with the woman at the well. And then after there, he went up, and the only record we have in the Gospel of John is that he healed this royal official's uh, son. And so he spent what we figure is a couple months up there in the Galilean region. He comes back down to Jerusalem for this feast. Um, we, we don't know which feast it is. You can speculate. Some do. Uh, but it really does not matter for that part of the story. He's in Jerusalem. Verse 2, and now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate was a pool, or if you remember from last year, we talked about washings in Hebrews chapter, uh, six, Hebrews chapter 10. Excuse me. There's six things, and one of them that we ought to be um, f- 
familiar with as believers that are in Christ is washings and baptisms. And we talked about the mikvah. The mikvah was the uh, is Israelite or Jewish form of purification. One of the places that they could be washed was in a pool. There were different pools. There was a pool of Siloam. There was a pool of Bethesda. Now, these mikvahs had a certain way of the water had to flow in and the water had to flow out. And there was this whole ordeal about getting them approved. And this was one of those. This was a mikvah where people would go for purification. Uh, in this particular case, we see that they were also there for physical healing. Um, but it was at these locations that Jesus would often find invalids and those that were sick and ill, and he would heal them. So he makes a point to go to this pool while he's in Jerusalem. These were the people with diseases and disabilities. They're waiting for these special set of circumstances and hopes to be healed. Notice two things here. A, Jesus sought out this sick man. And B, there was a multitude of sick people here at the pool. We will revisit that when we come to verse 13 where Jesus withdraws from the crowd. Now, some of you may have noticed earlier I skipped over the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Depending on which Bible translation you have, you may not even have that in your Bibles. If you look closely, the numbers may not line up. I'll explain this more fully in the months to come when we get to chapter 8 of John. But in short, what's happened here, and many modern translations pick up on this and they print it this way, the NIV, the ESV, the NRSV, the CEV, and the newest form of the New American Standard, which is not the one that I'm reading from currently. I have the outdated 1995 edition. Yes, it's very old. The 2020 New American Standard has actually taken these out. Why is it missing? Well, scholars are fairly certain. In fact, I am very certain also from what I've read that this was added by a copyist and is not original to the writings of John. And it was added because it helps explain verse 7. In fact, if you just sort of read as I read it, and again, we're going to get into this teaching in a couple months, but if you read this without the end of 3 and verse 4, it begs the question, why was he waiting by the pool? Well, it turns out the early church author, Tertullian, he was an early historian and writer, he wrote this in his notes. This was about 300 years after Christ was on earth. He said, an angel by his intervention was wont to stir at the pool at Bethesda, excuse me, I can't talk, Bethsaida, which is another name for Bethesda, but that's why I was getting tongue-tied, Bethsaida is what he wrote. They who were complaining of ill health used to watch for him, for whoever had been the first to descend into them after his washing ceased to complain. So he's writing that there was a moving of the water. They thought that some speculation came up that it was an angel doing it. Some have speculated he was even demonic. It was supposed to take people away from Christ. The people have gotten all into this to defend these verses, is that this should have never been there. This should have absolutely been there. There's much argument and debate about it. Well, two things are clear if you look at this. Obviously, there's more than one way to take what Tertullian was writing. He was either, A, commenting on the passage because it was original, and he was explaining what it meant, or just basically paraphrasing it in his own language, as commentators often do. Or, B, the explanation was not known everywhere, about this particular pool in the stirring of the waters, and Tertullian thought it helpful to explain why the sick were gathered there 
to those that would be imparted this letter of John. Nonetheless, verse 5, we'll continue on. We're looking at Jesus. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, obviously, that crippled man believed the legend about the stirring of the water. And so what did he do? How does he respond to Jesus? He blamed the fact that others beat him into the water as the reason that he has not been healed. Now, how this pool worked is not important, but rather that Jesus worked is. Our focus is on the revelation of Jesus. What kind of person is he? How can we be like him? What application is there in our lives looking at the life of Christ? John 20, 31, our theme. John clearly writes why he wrote the Gospel of John. What does it say? These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. It seems to me that John, this passage, is showing us something about three different things here. The knowledge of Christ, the compassion of Christ, and the power of Christ. He says in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus knew this man's situation without having been told. Now, we don't know why. Was it a word of knowledge? It very well could have been. Was it just... He, he perceived his situation and saw how frail he looked and figured that he had been like this. It wasn't just a thing that had just happened to him, possibly. But let us not fail to, to realize that this man had been sick longer than Christ Jesus was even alive, right? So there very well could have been times where this beggar, this crippled lame man, Jesus had interacted and seen him before. Every year they would go up to Jerusalem for all these feasts. Perhaps he had seen him like that for a long time. Now, I've talked in the past about a word of knowledge. Jesus certainly was under the operation, the blessing, the gift of the Holy Spirit. You too can operate as Jesus did, as the Holy Spirit sees fit, right? We have that blessing, the gift, the supernatural anointing. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. This is not the assuming of things, assuming of certain facts, of making things up. We're not just Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that guy must be sick for a long time. Okay, that's not what a word of knowledge is. Just because you're a spirit-filled Christian, you can't just assume things. Yet God will work in you the to, in his capacity as he sees fit to the advancement of his own kingdom for his own glory. He will give you these little words of knowledge. We talked about that. But next, I want us to just consider this morning, this is where we're going to hang. I want us to consider the compassion of Christ. And this ought not be confused with the intentionality of Christ. Intentionality is how Jesus was submitted to the Father and how he obeyed the Father. He did everything with a purpose. I have needs to go through Samaria. That's where we looked at the intentionality of Christ. And we ought to be like that too. But compassion is, on the other hand, is, this is from Merriam-Webster, a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress 
So a knowledge of their, their distress or toil or tribu- their pain, their sickness, their poverty, whatever, coupled with a desire to alleviate it. So it's not just knowledge of it, but it's coupled with a desire to alleviate it. What it. It appears that Jesus chose to go to this pool. Now, as I've already said, he, was, he only did what the, he saw the Father do. He only spoke what the Father told him to speak. The Father led him there, but he didn't have to. You know, this pool didn't sneak up on him. Oh, I'm lost in Jerusalem. How did I get here? Okay. Oh, there's a sick man. I guess I should pray for him. Jesus didn't just stumble by. He knew what he was doing. There's a multitude of sick that were found there. Verse 3. And here's the point. We're going to be like Jesus, right? We see the Savior of the world always moving towards need. Not comfort. He wasn't trying to make his life as easy as possible. He was always looking to fulfill need, to to touch the brokenhearted, not the self-righteous. And if you want to be like Jesus, then you must share in a burden for those that are in need. Maybe you don't want to be like Jesus. Plethora of excuses, right? I don't have time. I'm too shy. I'm too poor. Too tired. I'm hungry. Whatever. Listen, the furtherance of the gospel is dependent upon us being like Jesus, going after those in need with a desire to alleviate their distress. Compassion. It's not something I'm good at. I'm not full of compassion. In fact, I'm probably one of the most incompassionate people I know. My wife's smiling. She's, (laughs) look at her shaking her head. She can't even look at me right now. She knows. (laughs) She knows. My husband is preaching on compassion? (laughs) Yes, I am because it's in the word of God, not because I'm good at it. Okay? This is at me too, all right? I'm preaching at myself. <laughs> Several places in the New Testament speak of Jesus' compassion. The original word is a very remarkable one. It's not found in the classic Greek. It's not found in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's not even found there. The New Testament writers did not have a word in Greek to, to, that suited their purposes, and so they made one up. How many of you have ever been on a roller coaster? You know that you get to the top of the hill, click, 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 and you ever sit on the front row, it's especially bad, and you can like hang off the end a little bit, that sinking feeling in your stomach, right? You're like, oh man, it's, it's coming, and then you go down and it, your stomach sinks. <laughs> right? It's the same feeling you get when you get horrible news. Deb and Steve, when I was, um, I'm still a young boy, so I was trying to find words. When I was a young boy, (laughs) when I was younger, um, their daughter was in the youth group here at the church, and she got into a vehicular accident, as most of you all know. Deb and Steve were not in town, and they got a phone call. I believe it was Kim. Did Kim call you? Do you remember? police officer did. Okay. And I don't think, they didn't have a lot of details. I remember um, Kimberly, my wife, and I um, 
all went with Caitlin to the hospital. She got transferred up to Roanoke, and we were there doing our best to be a support system for Deb and Steve, who could not be there and were immediately driving back, but also for Caitlin, who was obviously fearful and by herself. And giving them some details, you need to come right away, you know, talking through things without trying to give them too much detail. Can you imagine the feeling that was in their stomach? Not knowing. Knowing that their daughter was in a bad accident and nobody's telling me the truth, but you need to be here. The New Testament writers have a word for that, and that's the word they use for compassion. It's, I'm going to butcher the word, splag, I practiced this so many times too. <laughs> so I like, I'm going to get this right, I'm going to get this right. It's splagnizomai, splagnizomai. It's a compound word. It's a made-up word. That's why I can't say it, because obviously I'm fluent in Greek. But it means this. I'm kidding. To be moved as to one's bowels. Hence, to be moved with compassion, to have compassion. For the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. That's according to Thayer's Greek lexicon. We talked about the heart this morning a little bit. And the writers in the Old Testament, they had some different views of heaven, right? As this this dome-shaped structure in the sky is how they talk about heaven. Well, the, the seat of the emotions is often referred to as the bowels. And this is this feeling of the sinking gut. That's how they describe the compassion of Christ. The feeling that Jesus had for the world, and thus the feeling we should have, is this deep inner hurting and gut-wrenching ache. That's what Jesus was moved to. Not, hmm, I wonder if I should help this person. But feeling a... a a sympathy beyond an empathy. It's, it's just a deep, gut-wrenching hurt for the condition and the place that someone else is in. Now, John happens to be the only gospel writer that does not use this word. So if you want to follow along with me, you can turn. We're going to be in Matthew for a little bit, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to look at a few instances of this side of Jesus in action. The first and most obvious probably most obvious component to the compassion of Christ is in regard to the sick, which is what we're looking at here in the Gospel of John. I'm just using some other scripture as examples so that you could see this about Jesus. Matthew 14, verse 4. Well, that's not the right one. Okay, well, hopefully the other ones are right. Let me just skip ahead here. Let's go to Matthew 20, 34. I'll have to find that one. Oh, it is 14. Thank you. Matthew 14, 14. I must have dropped the one when I made my changes this morning. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion. There's that weird word. I'm not going to try again to butcher whatever, for them and healed their sick. He felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Matthew 20, verse 34. This is about two blind men sitting on the road. Verse 34 says, Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Again, that same word. The second way we see the compassion of Jesus is that he was moved to those that were sorrowful. I'm just going to read this one to save time. It's in Luke chapter 7, verse 13. As Jesus was approaching a certain city, there was a a man being carried out. 
and it was the only son of a certain widow. And as Luke 7, 13 says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion and said to her, do not weep. He went on to heal this widow's son to raise him from the dead. But Jesus specifically did not, it didn't say he had compassion for the dead man. He had compassion for the grieving widow as having lost her son. And he was moved to that gut-wrenching ache, compassion over her grieving. The third thing we see, Matthew chapter 15, 32. Matthew 15, 32. Jesus has compassion for the hungry. I empathize with this. If I have compassion it's at all in my life, it's because of the hungry around me, because I love to eat. We're getting ready to embark on a three-day fast. I'm not looking forward to it. I see someone who's hungry. I, I just get frustrated sometimes with my children, the way they don't eat the wonderful food that my wife makes, and even the terrible food that my wife makes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? You heard this as a child growing up. There's starving children in Africa. Well, let me tell you something, right? <laughs> There's starving people in our backyard. Really, there are, okay? Now, you, I don't know if, if you've traveled overseas or not. There are certainly some places where it is eye-opening to see people digging through dumpsters. And we do have that in our backyard in reality, but that's often by choice um, in certain situations here, not this kind of poverty. But Jesus, these people have been following him for his teaching. Guess what? He was compassionate for those that were hungry, and I, I can relate to that, so amen. Potluck dinner. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. And fourthly, and, most, and lastly of all, most importantly perhaps, Jesus had a compassion for the lost. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 9. So we read this, I want you to take a note of the verbs in this passage. Underline them, write them down if you're taking notes. Look at the actions of Christ in these few verses. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. They said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into his harvest. We quote this verse all the time. We know it, don't we? Jesus had been walking, working through all the villages. Do you see the actions and things that he did? Going. Teaching. Proclaiming. Healing. And lastly, seeing. Here's what I'm getting at. Perhaps our inactivity suggests a lack of compassion. Perhaps the lack of action in our lives is indicative of the concern and compassion that we have or don't have for the lost. The more we go and proclaim and teach and heal and see, perhaps the more compassion will be stirred to in our hearts.
It isn't acceptable for believers to be idle or indifferent in a broken world. It isn't enough for us just to teach what is true and not live it out. It isn't enough to think that we are righteous when the unwilling, when we're unwilling to lift a finger to help the hurting, the needy, the perishing. You know, if you want to be like Jesus, you must do. Compassion is doing. Compassion is action. Compassion moves. It doesn't stand still. It's not just the feeling, but it's being moved for a desire to alleviate their distress. That's what real compassion looks like. And I suspect that the biggest hindrance regarding evangelism today is a lack of motivation. It's more comfortable to sit on the couch and to watch a show than it is to walk the streets, be spat at or made fun of or yelled at or ignored, isn't it? How many of you really like that? You really love when people make fun of you and yell at you and spit on you. Anyone really, that's my calling. I just, I want to be made fun of. I love tribulation. Oh, nobody. Nobody's gifted in that department. It's not natural for us, is it? We want praise. We want to be liked. Yet Jesus says that I bring a sword of division. Some of you will even hate your fathers and mothers to follow after me. He's talking about this, you can't, you can't live with one foot in the world. If you're going to preach the message of the gospel of the truth of my kingdom, then you're, there's going to be relationships severed. That's the truth that Jesus taught. He's saying it's going to be uncomfortable at times. You're going to have to preach a message that other people aren't going to like. Everyone's trying to package up the gospel in this nice little ribbon and bow on it, right? Here, here, have the love of Christ, have the grace. He's going to forgive all your sins. You don't need to do anything. He loves you just as you are. Yeah, he does love you, but guess what? He says, come out of the darkness into my marvelous light. Put off all these sins. You've got to change. You can't be like the world anymore. You've got to follow after me and be perfect like I'm perfect. But yet in evangelism, in a lot of churches today, we leave all that off because, oh, that's not comfortable. That's not, you're not going to attract people, right? So we, rather than just preach the truth that we know, that we received, the whole truth, what do we do? We just sit at home. Oh, beloved, if you can only see the world through the eyes of Jesus. How many of you are thankful that you know him? Aren't you excited and looking forward to the day that you get to see him in heaven, face to face? Then why do we keep that to ourselves? Jesus was moved to compassion. Surely if you love him and you want to be like him, you cannot look at this world without having pity. You can't go out to the streets for half an hour without at least thinking to yourself, which path of eternity are they on? You know, it's so easy to drive in your car. It's, you know, you see, you go on a Friday night. I encourage you just to one time drive through Blacksburg on a Friday or Saturday night about 12 to 3 o'clock in the morning. You'll see some things.
But do not look at the individuals caught up in these actions. In judgment. But to say, God have mercy on them. How can I share the good news of hope with them? Now back to our passage in John chapter 5. Did you ever notice or think about the fact that there was a multitude of sick people that were there? As far as we can tell, Jesus only healed this one man. And I point this out because it may cause problems in our theology if you believe that Jesus healed every single sick person that he saw. Could God have healed them? Absolutely, yes. He has the power to do it. But I think it's helpful for us with our limited and frail minds to acknowledge that while God can miraculously heal every single disease and sick person, for reasons that we may not understand, he doesn't always do it in that moment. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. And while it might be sort of normal to have questions about the why, why wasn't so-and-so healed? Why wasn't this? Why wasn't that? Why didn't God? As Louis said in our study this last week, perhaps it's best to ask God for the healing, even thank him in advance for it, but leave it up to him. Put it in his hands. Now, what is obvious is that Jesus went out of his way to heal this particular man. He passed others, and he sought out the man who had been lame for 38 years. But I don't want us to get hung up on speculation of the why. Let us consider the broader point. Jesus did it for a more important reason than just for the physical healing. Sometimes we charismatics keep healing as sort of the end-all, be-all. If I could just be healed, then I would trust God fully, or then my faith would have arrived, or, or then I would know, or then I would this. Sometimes uh, evangelists, televangelists in particular, will even go so far as to say, if, if you go and give me this much money, you will get a miracle. Guess what? The miracles of God are not for sale. Okay? We pursue healing. I believe in healing. It's a gift from God when it comes. He's paid for all of our healing. Past, present, and future, by his stripes we have been healed. Past tense. We stand on the word of God. We know what it says. But when we don't see the instantaneous, miraculous manifestation on earth, that doesn't mean we give up on God or that his word was wrong. There's a day coming when we will get total healing. But more important than physical, may we not get so caught up on physical, the physical healing of manifestation the manifestation of physical healing, that we ignore what Jesus' main thing he was going after. There was something greater than just the physical. He was going after, in his compassion for this man, the spiritual component. Let us learn from him. When Jesus asked the man, verse 6, do you want to be healed? The man didn't simply say yes. Instead, he explains his tragic situation, verse 7. There's nobody nice enough to put me into the water. Guess what? Jesus didn't ask any more questions. Nor did he play into this man's excuses and woes. He simply acts. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Walk. 
Now, this man was healed immediately, verse 9. But it was not in response to anything religious about him or some sort of faith that he had. Jesus healed him despite his lack of faith and asking. How many of you ever feel embarrassed or hesitant to pray for someone's healing because you aren't sure if they'll agree to the prayer or if they'll even have enough faith or even if you have enough faith, right? I've been there. Like, there's a person, like, quadriplegic, and you're like, all right, I believe in healing, but I just don't know if I've got enough faith for this right now, God. Exhibit A of John's Gospel. The man wanted healing. Now, that, that is, after all, why he was at this pool, this mikvah. And Jesus clearly didn't need that man's faith to release God's healing. Over, I'm not saying faith has no purpose. There, we see a connectedness in, in Scripture. If you were to read all the Scriptures about healing, there's certainly a place for faith in asking and coming to Christ. He, he uh, commended the, the Roman centurion for his great faith, right? And he was constantly rebuking the disciples for their lack of faith. Faith is important. All I'm saying is, if you're feeling weak in faith and God asks you to go pray for someone, perhaps obedience is more important than mustering up some sort of faith because clearly God does not need faith to work. All right? God is going to heal someone. He doesn't need their faith. He doesn't need your faith. He may, however, need your obedience. Verse 9, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Praise be to God. It's a wonderful testimony, isn't it? Now, at this time, John says something that feels abrupt. He says, now it was the Sabbath. We're enjoying how magnificent this Jesus is and how happy this man must have been, and John says, it happened on the Sabbath. Did you ever watch Princess Bride? It's a great movie. You guys haven't seen The Princess Bride? Shame on you. Good job, Sam. It's a wonderful book. Okay, why don't we use that analogy then? <laughs> you need to go watch that movie. It's great. You come back next week and I'll tell you my analogy. <laughs> All right. It happened on the Sabbath. John says something suddenly. It doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's not that Jesus has lost track of which day of the week it was. Jesus knows good and well what he's done. He's done it on purpose. I believe he's healed this man on the Sabbath and told him to carry his bed as a sign. Because Jesus knows that in this conflict, and I'm going to get this a bit to this morning and expand upon this next week, he's going to bring it full circle and bring God the glory. Verse, look at verse 10 through 13 again. I'm going to read them one more time. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is a Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Now, if you notice what's remarkable here, at least remarkable to me, is that Jesus healed, and he disappeared before the man could even find out who he was. It was this is not a long interaction exchange, was it? Man didn't even know. Does this mean that Jesus had no intention of dealing with this man's soul? Was he just content to do some random miracle and leave the man in ignorance as to where he, it came from? Of course not. And in fact, I think that's largely what's going on with the woman who has, had been hemorrhaging for years. 
who touched me. Jesus knew good and well who touched him. But he turns around and he wanted that woman to know who he was. So Jesus heals. He slips out. And note that it was Jesus who found the man, not the other way around. Verse 14. Jesus had no intention of walking away from this man, just doing a miracle and not pointing him to himself. And here's the point that I want to make. Healing, the gifts of healings, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about these wonderful gifts that the Holy Spirit distributes as he wills. These are signposts to Christ. These gifts, unfortunately, don't happen every time I want. I don't have a better answer than that other than we pray, we believe, we obey, and we leave it into God's hands. Okay? But when there is a miracle that happens of healing, oftentimes you read about it in, you know, impoverished countries more so, right? Someone's raised from the dead. So-and-so's healed. We take these testimonies as, as word that God is active and moving and doing things. Why it doesn't happen here, we can go into that another time. You can come Wednesday, in fact, we might go into that if you want. These miracles should always be opportunities for us to preach and teach the love of Christ in the gospel. We don't just go downtown and find somebody on crutches and heal them and walk away. Watch what Jesus, if we're going to learn from him, we do what he does. So Jesus, he heals this man and he slips out. Can you imagine all the commotion that would happen around this 38-year this cripple? I can't imagine his bones, his legs looked very buff, did they? Right? Skinny legs. You ever seen the videos of people trying to walk for the first time again after an accident? It's not instantaneous, is it? It's hard work. But not when Jesus touches you. There's no therapy. All of a sudden, he just touches this person, and instantaneously, without effort or practice, they stand up. They can bend over without losing their balance, pick up their pallet, and walk. I imagine that that might cause quite a stir among the rest of the sick around him. Jesus slips out. All these sick people, did Jesus not care about them? Is the compassion of Christ limited? Remember, miracles are signposts to God's love. John is making that pretty clear. And I think the main thing that John is communicating with us is that it's not just about physical healing, that this is some, about something spiritual. And that's what I want to leave us with in verse 14. And this is where we see the purity and the intentionality behind the compassion of Christ Jesus. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Jesus sought out this man a second time. He found him in the temple, and he gave him the re reason for his healing him. The man's issue wasn't that he could walk. I'm sure that man thought that was his issue. Oh, if I would just have a million dollars, my life would be complete. Are we any better than that, though, right? Oh, if I could just have another child. Oh, if I could just have a better-paying job. If I could just have no pain in my back. Oh, if I could just have feet, legs to walk. Jesus says, none of that matters. I want to make sure that you're knowing about my holiness and my requirement for your holiness. 
See, the bigger issue was not his health. It was his holiness. Jesus healed this man to make him holy. He was drawn to this particular man, and he used this healing, this manifestation, to share the gospel with him. Do you see? Sin no more. Stop sinning. My aim in healing your body is the healing of your soul. I have given you a gift. It's free. It came first before my command. You didn't earn it. You weren't good enough for it. I chose you freely, and I healed you. Now live in this power. Let the gift of healing, the gift of my free grace, be a means to your holiness. Let us not fail to understand that the source of Jesus' compassion was rooted in his concern for this man's future. If you think about it, as far as we know, we know that there are things that are not recorded about Jesus' life. We're told that specifically. All the books of the world couldn't even contain them. All the scrolls, right? But Jesus leaves, perhaps, I'm just going to say perhaps because we don't know, hundreds of invalids behind unhealed. And then he purposefully finds the man in a less conspicuous place and puts all the focus on his holiness. We believe in miracles. They have a place. They have a purpose. But I think we can learn from the fact that even though Jesus had all the power to heal everyone there that day, he did not usher in it for everyone all at that one time. And understand that the ministry of Jesus is always in pointing to a future day, the, the day of judgment, the day of redemption. You know, if you were just to read this passage without any bias, without the preconceived ideas of what these verses were about, I'm confident you'd walk away seeing that if we're going to be like Jesus, we ought to be more concerned with the eternal than the physical. The compassion of Jesus, because that's what we're talking about, being a more mature man, a man or woman. Growing up, spiritually speaking, being compassionate like Christ. It's a real thing that we ought to try and participate in, but we need to be earnest in our endeavors to make sure that salvation is the main thing. And I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we would fall short in that category in our lives, in our witness, in our evangelism. Sometimes I think our immaturity shows. Perhaps we want miracles because we think it would look cool. It would be cool. It would be cool, right? Perhaps it would boost our faith. Or to attract others to our church. I've had thoughts like that. Oh, if, someone's, if one person was just radically healed and the newspapers covered it. I'm not saying that wouldn't happen or that it would be a bad thing if that happened. I'm saying that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should not just be on the manifestation of healing. Focus should be on eternal life, on the holiness of those that are without Christ. Restoration of relationship with Christ. If you're going to grow up into a more mature man, then you need to see the lost for what they really are in the eyes of God. That invalid that doesn't know Christ is more than just a lonely and crippled individual. They are lost and headed for eternal damnation. Let us grow into compassion of Jesus and compassion that was focused on the eternal state of man.